Hello, this is Vanessa Knight with the Any Schoolers podcast. Today we're going to be talking with Esther Jones, who has the website estherjones.com, esther-jones.com. Her business is called Parenting from Within, and she coaches and teaches workshops for parents on de-schooling themselves and how to parent from a mindful perspective. Today we're going to talk with Esther about her own parenting journey, her own de-schooling journey, and we reference several books and a specific episode of her podcast, The Unschool Space, and we'll be putting the links for that specific episode and the books that she references in our show notes. We're a bunch of unsocialized feral heathens who do our multiplication tables upside down, hanging from a tree branch. Esther Jones is in the UK and she has such a special story. She spent time in Barcelona and she homeschools her three children, but she's also been in and out of some schools. And I want to ask her about that today. But Esther has her own business. It's esther-jones.com. And she helps parents de-school themselves from, and and actually parents from around the world, not just United States or UK, um, parents de-school themselves from the systemic pressures and expectations that they may have on the inside, not on the outside, but from from yourself um, and even identifying them. And um, Esther offers a one-off workshop on de-schooling, but then she also has a follow-up program on, on mindful parenting, and um, they're very cost-effective. Um, they're the first, the one is about $30 or 30 pounds, 30 pounds. <laughs> and, and, um, and then her longer workshop, a weekly, a weekly of weekly sessions is, um, 150 pounds. So it's very cost effective way to get some of this work done with, um, someone who knows what they're doing and just, just, she's just so soft. So let me introduce you, Esther, can you talk about First, so that our listeners can um, hear your story, can you talk about what, where you came from and what made you decide to start schooling the way that you did? Yeah, thanks, Vanessa. Um, so we were living in Spain where my three children were born. So now they're 17, 15 and 10. And um, my eldest son, um, from when he was very small, I kind of knew he wasn't a mainstream kind of kid and uh, he didn't like to be controlled. He didn't like to be told what to do. He really had a very strong mind of his own. And when he was young, he and his younger brother, when his younger brother was was born, um, when they were about three or four, they went to a kind of a part-time, very alternative playgroup in Barcelona where we were living. And that was lovely. It was very gentle. And they had an awful lot of of autonomy, the children. When he reached six, we realized that mainstream just wasn't going to work. He he hated doing the same thing as everyone else. He he didn't like to do what the group did. And um, mainstream school in Spain is quite traditional. Mm. And it would be sitting, you know, in a behind a desk in a big room of children and and so we went, um, we moved house, we went just up the coast from Barcelona and to this very new alternative school, which was entirely self-directed. Is that, the, um, and that's Sudbury, right? It's very, it was very similar, but it was new. So they were still really finding their ground. Um, but it was that kind of style. Yeah. 
Um, but like I say, they were kind of finding their ground. So there were some issues, <laughs> but generally it was it was very free and um, sort of all embracing. But even that, he he struggled with to be in that um, very sociable environment between nine and four every day it was an awful lot and um after three or four years we realized that while he and his brother at home had all these big interests and curiosities and they loved so many things about the world there they didn't seem to engage in much they didn't seem to want to and there seemed to be a lot of conflict happening mm. and so at some point, we just thought, okay, well, let's take a year out and try something else. And um, we were really, at the time, kind of running away from, also leaving something without a very clear idea of what we were going to do. So I had some quite traditional ideas that I just couldn't quite get rid of. And so I was concerned about maths and English and all those mm. things. Um, but that first year, we really started seeing how they were learning by themselves um and they were just amazing to watch and the more we relaxed into it the more right they sort of relaxed and it was just really fascinating to watch that and then at um when they were sort of nine and ten and their little sister by this time was about three mm -hmm. uh, three or four we moved to a house in the mountains in very nearby where we were and we spent two years or oh, about 18 months really completely de-schooling um i had just left the business i was running in barcelona and so we all just had this space for 18 months where we could really explore kind of who we were and what we wanted to do and it was really remarkable <laughs> um, you know looking back it feels like it was almost like an experiment but it was just incredible to see what they were interested in and to just let that be yeah so so i have i have a lot of questions but just really quickly mm -hmm. on that note about the move that you the two years that you spent in that space mm -hmm. what would you say to people who can't just like go to some idyllic place in spain and um and like live in a i guess it was like a cabin or something but it was sounded like it was just like probably a de-schooler's dream like some something that just takes you away and and it's almost like a um, yeah what would you say to people who can't necessarily do that but need to be able to have that 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 12 to 24 months of just stopping everything yeah well, it's interesting, actually, when, when you say that, Vanessa, because the so it was, a, it was kind of an old house. And um, what was interesting about it was it was just us. And in some ways it was idyllic. In some ways it was really hard <laughs> because when it's just you, there's sort of no excuses for things. Sort of no. It, it, it was um, there was so much work that I had to do on myself there that was so obvious there, which had we sort of still been in the city, it wouldn't have being quite so stark where oh. I was finding it challenging. So so, um, so it was both easier to have the space and perhaps challenging at the same time. Mm. But I, I think it's a very good point you're raising. And um, But I think this is work that you can do. And it, when we talk about space, it's almost finding mental spaciousness. And that was what I learned. I learned that you can live in an idyllic place in the hills and still your mind can not feel free 
Oh, you know, like, okay. So you, that's where you started to notice the sort of anxiousness yeah. that you felt. Okay. Okay. Exactly. So I would encourage mental spaciousness. So if you don't have the physical place, mm-hmm. I think um, mindfulness, meditation, long walks, whatever you can do to find that space in your mind. And it does have to do with the environment too, like who, you know, the people who are around you, who you, who you're interacting with and seeing if you can you know, have more like-minded people to talk to and mm-hmm. perhaps less critical people. That's so I think true. there are things you can adjust in your environment. But but um, not just your physical environment, yeah. but your internal environment and your relational yeah. environment. Like you're talking about just sort of like everything. The other thing yeah. that you said earlier, just a few minutes ago, you were talking about the different things that were you, you were sort of putting your eldest into this playgroup and then the sort of pre-Sudbury school, I think, you know, but the mm-hmm. democratic educational environments, they take a little while to pick up. And, and then I don't, I, you know, we, we could have a whole, we could have a whole episode about Sudbury and that method. But, mm-hmm. um, but I think what's interesting for our listeners is that even in the most democratic group environment where you have multiple families working together, some kids are just not built for that because of their sensory mm-hmm. needs and because of their their emotional capacity, the tolerance that they have for how much extroverting I need to do. Um, and so I think it's beautiful to hear your story about, because I think a lot of people are coming to homeschooling, at least where we live, thinking, you know, oh, it's the public schools. It's the, mm-hmm. it's the government-run kind of um, state-driven curriculums that we're escaping. But also, some kids are just not even going to work even in a democratic school that's the most free-to-learn kind of place. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a, a really great point. Um because there is a sense, well, at the time, there was almost at the beginning a sense of, well, how can this be more perfect? How can how can you not thrive here? <laughs> you know? like, but of course, it was a lot of people. Yeah. And the sensory um, part of it. And he didn't want to be with people all day, every day. Mm. He wanted more autonomy than that over how his days were. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's let's keep going. So you, I think in your episode that I listened to just this morning, you talked about how you did also go into uh, an, a teen, your teenage when he was a teenager, or is this maybe your third, your second child decided to go into school too, and so so can you talk a little bit about that too? It's been really interesting. I mean, I have to say before before I talk about my second son, that my eldest son who is loves to do group activities now and he sort of he likes to have a packed diary but he's very particular about the spaces that he's in and so it's interesting to me where he's had that ability to discern where feels healthy to him so he doesn't want a big group of 50 children but he does love smaller groups of five Mm. or ten so that's been interesting but yes so my second son who's now 15 um so we moved back to the uk three years ago and in January of last year, he decided he would like to try the local school. And so he went there between January and I think perhaps May. And um, it, he, it was partly out of curiosity, partly for some new friendships, because we were quite, we hadn't been here that long. And um, he, it was interesting, he he wasn't behind, which is kind of, 
reassuring for people to hear that that um in maths for example he had to you know grasp some concepts pretty quickly but he was old enough to be able to do that and you know he's been working with numbers enough in his life mm-hmm. um, he had, all the had no formal mm-hmm. yeah he had no formal math until until going there um he so he enjoyed some lessons and he enjoyed some friendships but ultimately he felt that it was i think too just sort of too constraining for him because he does now have so many other interests that he likes to pursue. When your son comes to you and says, I want to try public school, what happened for you on the inside? Yeah, so that's interesting. Do you know, I've got to the point now where I don't mind what they say or what they want to choose because I like to see that they know what feels right for them. Mm. So, and I think it's wonderful that they want to experiment with different things and see how it feels. So I don't feel like it should look a certain way. Mm-hmm. What I feel strongly is that I would love for them to know how it wants to should look for them. Okay. So um, what so what you're saying is it de-schooling or unschooling doesn't necessarily have to be anti-school. No, not at all. Ah. Yeah. So I know a number of people whose children have sort of been in and out of school or they've got to 16 and they've said, you know, I'm going to do two years because it's going to be the easiest way for me to mm-hmm. do what I need to do. And they'll go back into the education system. The point of it really is that it's a free choice um, and that it's supported. So while he was doing that, he was very much supported from home um, in that. And um, when he wanted to come out, he was supported in that too. Mm. So it really is about just saying, well, you know, allowing them to and, and trusting them in their choices. And they may make a choice that then they say, oh, actually, that wasn't quite right for me. But I think that's part really of, of knowing who you are, that feeling into different things and trying them out. Mm. And I, I think it serves you very well later in life to to have that experience mm-hmm. of, of, of um, trying things out. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about the title unschooling? I remember something you said about the the need, like you, you found it, you found this word and it like legitimized what mm. you were doing. Can you, yeah. can you talk about that, that piece of your experience as you were de-schooling? Sure. Yeah, sure. So um, I think anyone who has children who are very autonomy driven, um, who don't like to be controlled, they're going to feel more challenged, but in a way it's easier because if you follow your child, they will take you to a certain place, which is probably going to be some kind of unschooling place. So at the beginning, I, I was holding on to things and I had this idea that what this would look like would be me saying, hey, let's go and do this trip. And then we would, you know, talk about it and do activities around it. And but it didn't happen at all like that because they weren't necessarily interested in the things that I suggested. But it's almost like these... if you suggest it, they won't do it. Yeah. <laughs> also, yeah, also. But they were also interested in things that I didn't know anything about, you know, particularly <laughs> history and geography. History, mm. geography, languages, those have all been huge for us. And so I had to kind of, I was kind of forced to sit back because I didn't seem to be able to well, it, clearly I realized that my role wasn't this one of sort of motivation and get people doing things. That didn't seem to work. 
And so the more I sat back, the more I realized that they often didn't need me, the more I realized they were learning things that I didn't have a clue about. And they were kind of teaching me. So there's a lot of that happening. And um, and so I realized that as, that as we just sort of were in this space where people could really do what they wanted to do. But of course, I was always there to talk about things, to help facilitate something. You know, we were very much holding the space, but not um, directing it or controlling it, there, everyone just seems to be much happier. And then I think I came across Pamela Rickia um, and her website. I think she was the first person I came across. And I thought, oh, it does, it has a name. <laughs> it's a thing. And then I found John Holt and I found all this writing around it. And then I just delved into all of that. And I, and I just loved reading like, oh, and that's how the brain works and this is how we learn. And, mm. and I was just fascinated by that. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, so then I did read a lot around it. So it's like you found your, you found your group, you found your people, and it felt, made you relax a little bit. You weren't so alone. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, so in Spain, um, homeschooling is unheard of. Unschooling um, completely unheard of. So there were very few people near us there. And that, that was certainly one of the reasons we came back to the UK was the community. Um, but certainly even just finding people online that, that I could connect with was just really helpful. Mm. Very, very helpful. Mm. Not being alone. I do think that that's the question. I mean, I'm sure you've had this come up for you. That's the question that people always ask is the socialization question. Yeah. Um, and and socializing for adults, you know, you you need your people who are also of the same mindset, like you said earlier, surrounding yourself with people who are positive and um, mm. and encouraging for you. What do you tell people about your own children when the socialization question comes up? I'm just curious. Yeah. So, um, well, they, uh, you know, it doesn't come up very often. Um, partly they they all do quite a lot of things. They do the amount of things that feels good for them. So um, it's very easy to do things. And we're in an area where there are lots of things happening. So my eldest, for example, he does a lot of martial arts. He does a lot of workshops. He does a lot of drama workshops now as well. And so he, um, you know, he's seeing people all the time and of many different ages. Mm -hmm. So what none of them particularly love is being in big peer groups, mm -hmm. you know, but they... You know, so my eldest loves to be really, uh, he volunteers sometimes with workshops for younger children. So he's out and about all the time. My middle one has a lot of friends who he's in contact with, who he sees. And my daughter, who's 10, um, she has a few very special friends. She doesn't particularly like big groups, doesn't like going to groups, but she has some very special friends and we meet up with them quite a lot. Mm -hmm. So what I would say is that there are many opportunities and that by listening to your children, they are able to really exercise consent so far as their interaction with other people goes. Mm. And I think that's incredibly important for a child from a young age to say, I don't feel safe in this group or I don't want to be with this person. This doesn't feel right to me. Mm -hmm. And for them to be able to say that and for us to hear that. And I think it helps them as they go through life to hold on to who they are and to stay in environments that feel okay to them. And I think it's particularly when you see them going into their teenage years, you think, okay, that's that's good. Mm -hmm. you know. 
where there's, you know, there can be a lot of temptations and things happening, a lot of pressure from other people. But if they've had that ability to go through life and when they and choosing who to be with and when, mm-hmm. I think they're much stronger for it. Well, they have much more self-knowledge is what I would say. Yeah. You know, what you're getting at is interesting. It's almost like you're you're saying, um, well, what, what comes to mind is the word masking. Like if mm-hmm. kids are in a public school or, or a school environment where they're, they're, they're not, they don't necessarily consent to being there, they're just told they're, they're, there's a compliance, um, right. you, you know, it's just compliance based, then they they learn to mask being okay being okay with being there which might look to society like they're socialized right they're okay but maybe your kids and my and ours they they like um are they're not masking if they don't want to be somewhere they're gonna say i want to go home um right or or they have the ability to say this is this is very uncomfortable for me and so i want it makes me wonder I'd like, I wonder what your thoughts are about this. It makes me wonder, um, how do we present that to, uh, I don't know, like there's a, maybe there's a way to present that to people when they ask us about this. Yeah, well, I th- it, yeah, I think you're quite right that children get used to being compliant and accept it as normal. And I think that it, it just feels to me sort of incoherent with then what we want children to be like. And so I don't think you can say, okay, for these amount of years, I need you to be very compliant. Mm-hmm. And then for these amount of years, I want you to hold on to who you're, who you are, and say no when it's right for you. That's right. You get to adulthood, and you're, and you're like, let's be mindful and be in touch with our bodies, and and you can decide right. when you want to be here and there and wherever. But then for the first eighteen years of their lives, we've told them that they have to sit in this classroom with twenty five other people. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, it just feels completely incoherent. And and the only thing I can think is it's easier for us if they're compliant. I can't think of any other reason that we need our children to be so compliant. Um, well, do you, and do you think that maybe we'll have some people that will um, make the argument that this approach is too permissive, like that that we're just letting our kids get away with whatever and we should maybe have a little bit of compliance? Yeah, I th- I'm sure that that is... Um, something that, that that people would say and um i think people would look at it sometimes as though this is very lazy parenting as though the parents not doing anything but actually if it's done and, and certainly that could happen but i think the point of if we're talking about unschooling in the way it was originally calling is that what the parent is doing is holding the child in a very safe space a very safe, connected space. So I think there are some certain things that absolutely have to be there. And so we are, we know what the children are doing. We are connected with them. There's a constant conversation. We're interested in what they're doing. So um, in a way, it's permissive, but permissive only in the sense that we are giving them permission to be their full selves Mm. and we're trusting them. There's a lot of trust involved. I see what you did um, there. And- you just took that word and you and you <laughs> you repurposed <laughs> that you word. I repurposed it. Yeah. You're hundred percent right. I'm permissive. I gave my child permission to say no. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's very judgy, isn't it? The word permissive. I'm mean, in fact, in fact, yeah. It's, it's um, it feels. But I would I would say to the person actually who said, "Oh, that's very permissive." I would say, "What do you expect to happen if you give permission to a child?" 
do you oh. think this is chaos? Because this house isn't chaos. You know, they'd be surprised about how studious and academic it can sometimes look. Mm. Um, what do you think would happen if you gave permission to right. your child? Mm. What's yeah, the so fear, you would, I guess. You would, yes, you would ask them to look inside themselves and ask about the yeah. intention. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I think at the, at the bottom of all of this is that sort of mistrust of children. So, well, if we don't tell them what to do, they won't know what to do or they'll do nothing. Yeah, why do you think just... we do that? Why do you think that there's a, yeah. there's a mistrust of children generally? Do you have an opinion about that? Well, there's a really lovely phrase by um, John Holt, who's the person who originally coined the term unschooling. He was a New York educator. And he says... Um, I think the phrase is something along the lines of we don't trust children because we were never trusted ourselves. Wow. And so most of us are fearful. We're fearful that we're not getting it right, that our child won't turn out right. Well, there's an awful lot of fear in us about, and, and we know this because we're reactive often when our child doesn't want to do something or that we think they should. We can feel ourselves worrying. And, and so... Oftentimes, what's fascinating to me on, the, on my podcast, it, invariably, the parent who de-schools and really starts to trust their child starts to feel into all those places in their own lives where they were compliant at the, at the cost of being themselves. And then they start to sort of live into their own lives more wholly, more fully. And that it's almost, almost described as a sort of healing journey. Um, because they realize that they've been overly compliant, overly worried about what everyone says about them, mm. and it always sort of ends up reflecting on ourselves. Yeah. yeah, I remember you said something to your friend Nicole. Um, she asked you if um, she said something like, can you talk about the effect that unschooling has had on you as a person? And the answer to that was that you um, felt permission to be yourself. Right. Yeah. So it sounds like, I mean, you're talking about that. You're talking about um, you, you, re you start to recognize all the ways that you have, you have been, I don't know that traumatized is maybe, uh, that might be too, too dramatic. Some people might not use that word, but you have been compliance all, your right. whole life. Conditioned. conditioned. Yeah. I think mm -hmm. conditioned is a really good word. Absolutely. I mean, I was a very um, conscientious uh, child at school I was very compliant um, and I was also very I didn't like school until I got older and I did a lot of sport and I sort of found my but I was very aware of how do I need to be to fit in how do I need to be to be liked by the teachers to be how liked I mask by my myself mm -hmm. yeah what what do I need to look like and of course if you're asking that well what are the bits of yourself that you're saying oh I must better not show that bit because that won't really work in this environment mm. Um, and of course, you know, if you take that through life, then you end up being, you can be quite disconnected from yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually became quite a perfectionist. So that was my de-schooling was really getting rid of my perfectionism, you know, around myself and that kind of sense of striving and needing to show people and, mm. you know, how worthy I am, all of that sort of thing. That's what Carl Jung calls yeah. shadows. The parts of ourselves right. that we disown, the parts exactly. of ourselves that we don't think we should have be whatever. Exactly. So you have, and the thing about shadows is that there always is a reckoning. There's always, yeah. and, and I think for, for us, like, um, and I, I don't, I wonder about this for you, that 
the the shadows seem to show themselves up in our children. And when we yeah. see them in our children, I think some of that is the reactivity that we have is when we see something that we think shouldn't be it, yeah. we, in our kid, it, it becomes the reactivity comes because we have something in ourselves too, that we need to be able to reckon with. I love what you're saying. Exactly. And I think that when you say, okay, my child, I'm going to let my child be the person they are. I'm going to let them live wholly and fully. And I'm, I'm going to let that happen. Then you don't have that outlet. You can't keep saying, oh, but if my child did that, then you're stuck with, oh, this is me. <laughs> right? Mm. right? No oh, wonder I had I such a harsh reaction. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, rather than telling my child, no, you have to do that. If I don't do that, I'm left with that sense of why, why do I need to do that? Why do I need to tell me? And then, of course, that's the unraveling of our own decondition, of our own conditioning right there. Mm, Once we that's take the, the de-schooling. Lens off the child. Yeah, that's the de-schooling. de-schooling right there. Oh. Then turning the lens on yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. That's right there. When mm. you when you started, um, I think it was when you were in your in your two years in your idyllic home. Um <laughs> you you um you said something about how like, you know, oh you started to address the compliance within yourself and you noticed that you were feeling guilty. Um, there was, there was a, there was a come, I think it, I think it was like, you know, your kids are waking up and they're in their pajamas and you're, you're, you could find yours. You see, you could see yourself assessing, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Um, how did you let go of that? Mm. Yeah, that was really powerful for me, particularly at the beginning on Monday mornings, because I was so used to being really productive and getting up on a Monday morning and, you know, that, that whole thing that we do on a Monday. And, um, the the knowledge that all other children were going to school and all other people were going to work and mine were in their pajamas or not even up, I found that really challenging at the beginning, as though I were looking in on myself mm. and, and and judging myself. Um, I guess letting go by simply when those voices arose, again by by just feeling into what it, what's this fear. And looking around, sometimes just looking around at what is actually happening. And what is actually happening is there are three happy children doing things that are meaningful to them mm-hmm. and saying that's fine. You know, so a part, a lot of it was appreciating the actual moment. And mindfulness to me was absolutely essential to be able to keep coming back to, okay, what's actually happening here? Um, and to get away from that reactivity in, in my mind. Mm. And then... Sorry, I think as you're going through, the more you relax, the more they relax. And so it becomes quite a virtuous circle where the more you do the work, the easier it is. And then you think you see all the things, the wonderful things that are actually happening. Mm -hmm. And then you really do relax. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk about over answering? Yeah. Oh, I love this one because we used to do it all the time. When someone comes in and they're they're, they're all excited because they're doing this learning journey and they come in, they go, Mammy, mammy, what's a what's a fraction or what's a what's a Greek something or who is Julius Caesar or and then you answer and then you keep on talking because you know a lot about it. Right? <laughs> At which point your child's eyes glaze over and they go, "That's enough." I don't. That, oh, you stop, stop, stop. That's enough. That's enough. And and because you've kind of tried to harness the moment, whereas they need a little fact and they're going to run away and carry on their journey. Mm. Gosh, we used to do it all the time at the beginning. And now sometimes my daughter will even say, I want a short answer. <laughs> <laughs> she can 
didn't even <laughs> predict it. <laughs> Short answer, please. Yeah, yeah, she did, particularly on certain, certain topics. But um, and and then that's I think that's that's such a huge part of it is, is understanding that we we can't be in their brain. So if we say okay, we're going to cook and we're going to look at fractions and weighing things and 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 they're not interested it's because that's not at a, a place where they're at right now and they're mm. sort of not receptive to that right now the scaffold is down um, here and you're and you're saying i want them to be up here like yeah we are kind of assuming that you can because i've got that information and i i want them to take it on now but if we're trusting that they're going in their own way they'll come across that and then they'll come and ask um if we trust we can't predict what they need yeah so i keep referring back to this podcast because it it was the last thing i heard and i was taking notes but there was something that you said um the outcome doesn't really matter yeah can you explain that (laughs) yeah so the outcome doesn't matter yeah you know, I think what you kind of learn when you're doing this is that the content of the learning is so much less important than their process. So, for example, if here, if I was just writing about this, if here someone says, oh, I want to try this activity, and as a parent, you might think, oh, that sounds really good. That's going to be great for them. They're going to make friends. They're going to or, you know, oh, he's probably going to become an engineer because he really wants to do this workshop. And of course, our minds go somewhere and we fill with all these hopes and things. Mm-hmm. And then they come back and they say, oh, actually, I, I don't want to do that again. I, I didn't like it. And and there's this sort of sense of disappointment because we were, we had sort of pinned hopes on on this. But actually what the child's doing is discerning we're back to that thing of the child going okay well that was kind of interesting but it's not where i am right now so i'm gonna and and what will they take away from it they'll take away the things that didn't work for them and then they're going to refine and they're sort of refining their journey so i think if we see our child as sort of going on this journey where they're always working out and discerning their next step as well as they can in a way that's aligned with them then we start worrying about, oh, but it hasn't worked out exactly like that. Because it's about how they're making choices and decisions. That's the most important part. And it's almost like, what are they learning? Matters less than how are they learning? Are they, you know, my son, for example, loves languages. So he'll, he has books that he uses and then he gets a little bit bored. So he goes to YouTube and he, um, and he watches songs with lyrics, and then he learns the lyrics, and then he'll do something else, and then he'll put on a film, and he moves around in a way that makes it constantly interesting for him. So, because he's had that freedom to know how he learns. Mm. And so, that I think is the valuable part of this is them learning how they best function. And so, the outcomes. If we and if we trust that they always know how to best function, or that that that's what they're learning, then as they go through life, they'll be applying that knowledge to it, and so their outcomes will naturally be generally as good as they can be for them. Mm. My three all learned to read and spell with Minecraft because uh, Minecraft gave them the, the so they all learned to read by themselves, and they went pretty much from non-readers 
to really needing to read on Minecraft. And then within a couple of months, they be will become very good readers. It was quite remarkable to see that. Um, but I think Minecraft, yeah, so that idea that you can master something is so important to a child that they can become, become very good at something. So again, if you, if you see your child doing something and you can't really understand how that will apply in the world or what the point of that is, perhaps the point is that the child is learning to master something, that enjoying being really, really good at it. So Minecraft could certainly turn into one day um, engineering, nursing, um, you know, whatever it is, whatever they, they, you know, want to be good at. And again, they, it's just a skill they're learning. How can I be really good at this, this skill? Mm, so, and then, so what you like about Minecraft is the idea of mastery, that it, it's not yeah, necessarily teaching I, content, it's teaching the joy of, of I know this and I feel good about it. Yeah. And I think they that because they've also they've got this also this world in which they're autonomous. I think also when we the whole gaming um, thing I know is very triggering to a lot of parents. And uh, my eldest, he gamed a lot. There were two years where he did a lot of gaming. Um, and sometimes if he gets anxious, he'll go and game because he knows it's good for him to it, it's his safe space. Mm. And we talked a lot about it, um, but he always he always played games that were totally aligned with what he's interested in. So his games tend to be strategy games, got a lot of economics, politics, world world affairs in them, and that was what he would do, and that's what he's interested in. Um, so, um, yeah, but oh, I've lost. Sorry, I lost track. Of well, I think what you're friends. you're talking about um, you're talking about the the importance of addressing the screen issue and and yeah. and and so let i think we can dive deeper into this because it's it is it really is a thing i mean um mm -hmm. you know we've got i think there a lot of times the conversation that comes up and and in my my clinical practice that comes up a lot too my kids on screens all the time i think they're yeah. addicted um and and so where do you think is the balance between de-schooling and letting that alternate completely autonomous space be okay and needing real life learning and where yeah. do you and where do you put in the containment for kids mm. around okay this is too much we need to turn it off for a while i think that partly once you um so when my children were going to that very alternative school and i was at the beginning i was still quite you know i i felt like screens were a bad thing and they would they were younger but they would come home and they would have like an hour and a half for minecraft in the evening and they'd come home it didn't matter what was going on they had to sit down and do minecraft because i this was their designated minecraft time when we dropped that what i found would happen was they might spend eight hours on minecraft and then they wouldn't touch it for a week mm. but they would get what they wanted and then they were done and so I think by taking away the idea that this is limited and bad help is helpful. Also, a lot of things that children do on screens are actually incredibly interesting. But I think the key here is to maintain the connection and to understand what's happening. So rather than us to have that knee-jerk reaction of, oh, no, that's been too long now, what happens if we sit down and understand what our child's getting from it? 
a child absolutely could be bored. They may be on the screen. You know, like if we're sitting there scrolling through something because we're bored mm -hmm. and someone comes along with a better suggestion, we'll probably go, oh, yeah, okay, thanks. Yeah, I'd love to come and do that. Put the phone down. But right. we might be doing some... Yeah, we, but we might be researching something. We might be in the middle of something really fascinating. Or we might just have learned how to edit something and we've finally figured it out. And please don't talk to me now because I'm in the middle of something. Mm -hmm. They're the same. They're absolutely the same. So the question is, they may be finding all their connections with other people through, they might be connecting with people on, you know, online. I would connect with the child and work out what's actually happening here for this child. Like, what's my child getting from this? Because screen time is a very, very big word. And, you know, if I call my time on the screen screen time, well... We're doing know, it right just, now. <laughs> you're right. This is screen time. Yeah, exactly. I've actually got like three screen screens, four screens in front of me. Yeah. So I think to, to say, oh, you know, my child just have having screen time feels kind of dismissive as well, because there might be things in there that are really important to the child. Mm. So what are those things? And I would, you know, I would encourage the gaming. I, I didn't really understand until I sat with my son. He kept saying, hey, come and sit, come do it, come do this with me. I couldn't. I was amazed. There was so much reading. There were so many calculations. It was just completely over my head. I was absolutely staggered by what he was doing in his games. Um, this would be really hard for me. Mm. I, I think I would get really restless if I had to do that. And I remember you saying something. Can you talk about this? Because I, maybe you can help me. Um, mm. there, there's this, there's this like uh, comment, I think you told this story about your daughter asking you to do something with her. And then she, you said yes. And I, it was yeah. around the topic of consent and, um, yeah. and you said, yes. And, but she said, you don't really want to do it, do you? Because mm. she could read something in your face or your voice yeah. that was reluctance. And, um, and then she didn't want you to engage with her yeah. unless you were wholly in it. I think I would have around screens, I would have some reluctance to like, I would have some difficulty consenting in myself right what is going on with me there <laughs> well, that's interesting. Do, you mean, do you mean in sitting with them and seeing what they do and sort of taking an interest in it yeah i think just like i mean our little setup is they've got their xbox they sit on the floor the, the, it's down low they they put on their little headsets and they talk to their friends and it's interesting because my friend cynthia who's our webmaster for any schoolers she actually has a she's the one who manages a server for kids and she has a little character that walks around and tells the kids to stop taking each other's resources and stuff <laughs> like she's like managing and they're like oh yeah that's wow. cynthia um but uh but i think i think it's like the idea of just sitting down the idea of just mm. sitting down and watching the watching the game feel makes me feel like i want to pop back up again and go do the dishes i mean like anything feels yeah. better than that <laughs> that's so interesting though isn't it well, i think then perhaps it's just bringing another kind of lens to that and just thinking because what i've noticed if is i if if my daughter for example is playing on roblox or something and and um i am thinking wow what is that game nothing seems to happen there like you know <laughs> what is that about 
And then I, but I actually get interested. I genuinely get interested. I don't pretend I'm interested. I, I think, I wonder what my daughter's getting out of this. And I actually can really get into a curious place. So mm, I have that's to maybe what I just curious. need to shift my mindset to some curiosity. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I think it's into curiosity. Exactly. And I think when we're curious, like if you sat there and thought, wow, they're having such a good time. I wonder what it is about my children that, that makes them so happy when they're doing this. Mm. What is it? And then, and they really, you know, if you, if a child is feeling like their parent, that every time they're on the screen, their parents kind of tutting and looking at them going, mm, they're not going to share what they're doing. And I don't think that's a great way forward either. Whereas if your daughters or your child's on Roblox or on Minecraft, and they do something amazing that they're really proud of, we celebrate that with them. You know, oh, it's on the screen, so that doesn't really count. You know, if we oh, celebrate that. yes, I do that right? for sure. And then they and then they'll come and show you that that you know it just I think to create this kind of conflict around this one area mm. which which may have lots of joy for them they may have lots of mastery going on all connections all these wonderful things and rich things for them for us to go no that's all bad I think that's really damaging potentially to the to our own connection. Well, and I think too, like to your point, the lack of attention too, like that, like lack of celebrating that, not, not just necessarily mm -hmm. saying negative, something negative, but like the other day, it's, what comes to my mind is our son, David, who's eight said something like, I found a pink sheep in Minecraft. I don't know what that means, but, <laughs> but, but he shared it with Cynthia because Cynthia knows that pink sheep are very rare. And she was right. like, good job, buddy. You know? Um, so, but, but I don't understand those things. So I can, and then I think too, like, um, what you're saying is it's not about necessarily even the content. It's about the connection versus the disconnection. And in our yeah. house, it, because we're so busy, we both work full time and, um, and run a nonprofit and, and all those things. And we do spend so much time together, especially after the last three years in the pandemic. Um, we, we use screen time as a sort of our time out time from each other. So hmm. it's, you know, like it, that's when I get quiet time because I have four children yeah. <laughs> sure. and it's loud. Um, and so I find, I think part of what might be happening is I find that time as uh, that's my, that's my mom. That's my self-care time when I am able to like yeah. allow my space uh, my sensory environment to be quiet. And I remember you saying something also about self-care and mothering yourself. Mm. Do, so maybe that's where we could go next. Can you talk about um, how you how you conceptualize mothering yourself? Yeah, I think that, um, <clears throat> you know, it's so important. Well, there's a couple of things here. But first of all, to hold all those people, you know, the children, to hold them and to hold their emotional selves and what they're doing and all their activities. You know, it's a huge amount of work. And I think that mothers in particular, but fathers certainly too, that, that idea that of martyrdom sometimes, oh, you know, I, there's no time for me. I have to do all this for everyone else. First of all, it's generally unsustainable. Mm -hmm. um, and when we are like that we and we end up running on empty, we're not we're not really at our best selves. We're unlikely to be so connected. We're unlikely to be so nurturing or, or just present. So that's one thing that it really starts with us. But the very important thing here is that we're modeling. And so 
if I'm tired and I like if whatever the circumstance, if I think, how would I like my daughter to respond at my age or when she's an adult mm-hmm. to being exhausted or being uh, overwhelmed? I'd like her to be able to state her mind and say, I need five minutes of quiet or this is what I need. I'd like her to know her needs and to be able to advocate for them. And so I think that can only happen if we are advocating, advocating for finding our own joy, advocating for, you know, for fulfilling our own needs. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, anything that's a little bit incoherent doesn't quite sit right. So if I say, I want everyone to be joyful and to do all the things that they want to do and to feel fulfilled, but I'm not, then the message isn't really there. It's just not there. So I think for us to go, okay, what does it look like to be a healthy human being who takes care of themselves, who still has lots to give? What does that look like? And can I live into that? Mm. I think that's really essential. That's so beautiful. In in whatever way that looks for for each, you know, that's going to look entirely different for all of us. Of course it is. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm maybe I need to just check in with myself and say, is this a time when... I need if if I'm feeling that restlessness when I sit down to try to connect with my kids about Minecraft, uh, you know, it, it, do I need to check in and say mm, this is not a time when I can do this? I need to go take care of myself because this is the time when the house is quiet, and I need yeah. to sit and I need to stitch like I do some I do stitching that kind of thing and just need to sit with my coffee mm-hmm. or call a friend, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, call a friend or, you know, whatever it is, if it's not feeling right, I think it's a really good practice to just exactly, as you said, feel into how am I? Check with your body, all of those things. Check with your body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what's going on? What do I need? Mm-hmm. And, and and just modeling that. Yeah. I have, I, I'm, I'm, I want to respect your time, but I have one more question that I want to ask you. Um, so I think that one thing that's really important to, for us to look at is that like the reason why Josh took your workshop is because we're at different stages of our own de-schooling. Um, mm. So for couples um, who are partnering in their, in their homeschooling journey, how do you think um, partners can work together if, if there's probably, I mean, there's always going to be one partner that's a little bit more de-schooled than the other. And so then I think, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I hear other homeschooling moms talk about like feeling like they're like, like, like their partner is the, the principal that comes in and says, oh, you're <laughs> teaching the kids, you know, or, or, or yeah. even like, have we counted enough out in the U S in some of the States in the U S you have to count a thousand hours. Um, so what would you say to, what would you say to partnerships? What would you say to people yeah. who are co-parenting, whether they're together or not together in the same household? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think it's really hard. And when, when, when two people are at very different stages of the journey, I would say that the person who has done the more work, who is feeling like they have evolved more, really tries to hold their space to try to not be too critical. I think the minute we get critical with each other, every, everyone sort of defends their space and it, and it gets worse. So I think that the person who is feeling more evolved or who, who, who is simply reflected more, sometimes this is all about how much self-reflection a person has done, mm-hmm. and that that person needs to just try and model what they have learned and to try and model it with the partner too. 
if there really are big points of conflict and and also appreciate what the partner does do, it's really easy to start criticizing the other one and assuming the other one needs to be exactly like you. So mm-hmm. here, for example, so you're talking about different. you're talking about the deschooling. Yeah. The, when you say the more evolved, you're talking about the person who's decided to deschool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sorry. I, yeah, I mean, I mean the person who's done more work around their own deconditioning mm. and who's seen things in a slightly different lens. So that person is, you know, and and so you're likely to get a lot of criticism from one to the other who thinks the other one should be just like them. Mm-hmm. But actually, it's also you know, what about knowing we're two different people who will offer two very different things and seeing how we can fit that together? Mm-hmm. So perhaps actually drawing some lines around certain things, like, okay, I'm the one who does this with them. If you want to do that, why don't you do that? And I'll, you, could, you know, try perhaps and delineate some things. That's a good idea. Um, so mm-hmm. like if your partner really wants to do workbooks and really thinks that's that's how it needs to be taught, you just let them do it and sort of let them, I guess, be a learner too. learn how to teach. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. absolutely. Absolutely. You know, here we do things in a very different way. Myself and my partner, we've both been doing this a long time. So I certainly um, kind of was the one sort of leading the way on this. And certainly I had, you know, we got, you certainly had moments where we would get annoyed with each other. But now there are certain things that I do and there are certain things that he do. I, he does. I really appreciate. For example, he is very happy to sit at the kitchen table with two boys and talk politics for six hours. I can't do that. (laughs) (laughs) They'll talk economics and politics and world affairs and they'll be there for hours. And I think, oh, thank goodness. And that's a need they have that he can totally fulfill. And that will be the same in other partnerships. There will be needs that one partner can really enjoy meeting. So, you know, sometimes, and this is something Pamela Ricky talks a lot, what about getting back to needs? Mm -hmm. Not so much. I do this, you do this. And okay, what do these children need? What needs can this person fulfill really, really well? What needs can this person fulfill mm-hmm. really well? Mm-hmm. Perhaps there are different roles as well, mm-hmm. you know. But try to keep it from not getting conflictive because I, I think then it just, just just sort of doesn't really go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Hold the other person mm-hmm. in in their in have the give them the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, and see what their strengths are too Mm -hmm. and help them bring their strengths as well. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. I feel uh, this is such a lovely conversation with you and I feel feel so much calmer even just having listened to her sweet voice. (laughs) She's (laughs) so soft and soft and and gentle. Um, uh, Esther's workshops are fantastic. And if you have an opportunity, go to esther-jones.com so that you can experience Esther yourself live on one of her (laughs) classes. Thank you so much, Esther, for being with us today. Is there anything that you'd like to share? Is there anything that you'd like to share at the very last minute? Any Um, final words of wisdom? Yeah, finally, it all comes back to connection. Don't let anything... Don't let anything spoil the connection, whether it's screen time, what they've learned. You know, when we can connect with our children, um, everything opens up. And keep, just keeping keeping that as our main, um, our main driver, the main thing. 
Those are some beautiful final words. Thank you so much, Esther. (laughs) Thank you, Vanessa. Thank you. This podcast is produced by anyscores.com.